0: Welcome to Reflections on Buddhism on 90.7 FM KSQD Santa Cruz. Reflections on Buddhism is a monthly radio show with Buddhist monastic Venerable Tenzin Choki, and it bridges the world of Buddhist thought and the latest research into positive psychology. I'm your host, Matthew DeVaris, and each month we'll select a topic where we can weave together Buddhist wisdom with the science of mind, and then apply these concepts to everyday life in a practical way. We're joined today by Deborah Eden Tull, the author of Luminous Darkness, an Engaged Buddhist Approach to Embracing the Unknown. A resonant call to explore the darkness in life, in nature and in consciousness, including difficult emotions like uncertainty, grief, fear and xenophobia, through teachings, embodied meditations and mindful inquiry that provide us with a powerful path to healing. Tenzin, I think I can safely speak for you when I say we both found this book very engaging and we're excited to welcome Eden to the show.
1: Yes, very much so. Eden, thank you so much for joining us. I'm grateful to be here with you. I'm really looking forward to this conversation unfolding. There's so much to unpack uh, about what you've written in your book But first, I just wanted to kind of hear a little bit more in your words. We're going to be introducing you with your official bio. But I was wondering if you could just tell us a little bit about your own personal journey and what brought you to this work of endarkenment, as you call it. Sure.
2: Well, first, I would affirm that the natural world has been my greatest teacher and i think i've been aware of that even since i was a very young person and this book in a way is an expression of eco dharma turning towards the teacher of both physical darkness the darkness of the night and metaphorical symbolic darkness the luminous darkness that we point to In meditation practice, often as emptiness, the darkness that I believe many of our ancestors revered and held a great respect for, the darkness of the night teaching so many of our ancestors a quality of humility and reverence for the mystery. So, for me, everything in my path and in my teachings really comes from a deep respect for the natural world as our primary teacher. And I grew up in a city, the city of Los Angeles, but got away every summer. And as often as my parents were willing to take us into the wild, they were nature lovers themselves. And as a young person, I feel that I was deeply in touch with my own receptive nature and actually learned to meditate at a very young age taught by my grandmother on a camping trip next to a creek and my path evolved Um, from there I lost my dad when I was 11 and as anyone knows who's lost a loved one unexpectedly um, the progression of working with grief and embracing grief also as a teacher really informed a lot of my path going forth and certainly inspired me on the path of buddhism and i talk in the book about a transition that i made towards living as a monastic which i did for seven and a half years before returning to uh, teach and live as a lay person and one of the Pieces I would say about endarkenment is that when I reflect on my path and what's been most informative for me about uh, presence, about interconnection, about waking up to who and what we really are beyond what we've been taught and how we've been conditioned, so much has to do for me with coming back home to a very embodied relationship with our earth connection with the way that we experience and perceive the mystery the nameless beyond labeling and measuring and comparing everything Uh, a relationship with The cosmos that it invites us into a quality of awareness that many wisdom traditions point to in different uh, and similar ways but it really opens us up to uh, whole mind perception and perception through this integration of body mind spirit and I think this is one of the things the term endarkenment points to because I'll be curious if this mirrors your own um, observations, but sometimes in the pursuit of enlightenment, which I'm in no way discounting in, my, in this book, my own pursuit of enlightenment uh, changed and saved my life as a young person. But in today's world, because collective conditioning is so biased towards light and against the dark, there can be, even in our spiritual practice, kind of a uh, leaning too far into the rational mind, an attempt to understand through cognitive mind and transcendence and trying to get to the light. And I'm really inviting people to explore and inquire into what is possible and what opens up for us as human beings when we fully open to the wisdom of the dark equally. And when we let go of this very popular collective bias towards the light. You with me?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's, you know, so much of what you said, both Matthew and I resonated with. And, you know, in, in your book, you quote, at one point you quote Carl Jung and Jung said, one does not become enlightened by imagining figures of light, but by making the darkness conscious And I think, you know, in relation to what you just said, I really think some of us, I include myself in there, really embark on the spiritual path because we very much want to sort of transform who we are or sort of merge with beings of light. Like you say, we have this cultural bias towards the light goes back to Descartes. We'll get into that and unpack like a little bit more, but we kind of resist making the darkness conscious. And, you know, there's a way that we're looking for some kind of transcendence, I think, like the ideas of sort of spiritual bypass and this positivity. And, you know, I I think that's not what the spiritual path is all about, but it's how so many of us begin. And why do you think so many of us are inclined to use meditation practice and the spiritual path to kind of jump over some of the messy bits and not really making the darkness conscious why do you think that is i appreciate this inquiry very much and i
2: think that part of it comes from an assumption people have that enlightenment is both an end and a goal and it's not and also this very deep-seated conditioning from capitalism Uh, From the paradigm of individualism that puts people on this treadmill of self-improvement and teaches people that uh, small self and maintaining the small self is the name of the game in life, is how we succeed. It's very confusing for people. So then people come to spiritual practice and it's like, oh, here's an opportunity to uh, improve and fix and solve and change myself finally here's an opportunity to improve myself through even just mindfulness, let's say. But it's so um, misconstrued. And I don't know about you, but for me, such a, a deep, deep relief. The more I realized and recognized that that wasn't the name of the game and that I could simply let go of that and really be fully present with and open-hearted to the entire range of the human experience, as you said, the messy bits. To acknowledge that in being with, uh, and in not turning away from any of it, we remember that which is um, stable within, that which is fully present and expressing love in every moment. We we recognize the nature of awareness itself which is not judging good or bad, or I'm happy when I get this, but not when I get that, or when I feel positive emotions, but not the messy bits. So it's a clear path to remembering
1: who and what we really are. Yeah? Yeah, you you talk about a period at the monastery when you had first started practice, and you realized there was nothing to turn away from. And at one point in the book, you say, I had been st- Starving for space to be with and welcome my human experience, free from the habit of labeling and judgment, and free from other people's interference. I finally gave myself permission to cease the restless activity of chasing light. And I love that so much because I think a lot of us really do, you know, beginners do have this idea that spiritual practice is just to make all the unwanted things go away and be blissful all the time. And, you know, I sometimes joke with students when I'm beginning a course and say, Hey, if you're here to just bliss out and just go into some blissful state, you know, you're welcome to leave right now because meditation is about seeing reality the way that it is and not about sort of leaping over And you also quote uh, Lama Rod Owens, who says, we can't wake up until we're willing to let go of the idea of utopia and how we're fixated on a perfect, better, more positive life experience that we could and should be experiencing. And so I definitely resonate with what you were saying. And I've noticed in my own practice, you know, starting out in that way, too, of really kind of wanting to be something other than who I really was and realizing that's not where the path was taking me, it was taking me to being more fully human and accepting of all the pieces of myself. (laughs) Yes,
2: yes. And with the deeper, darker undercurrents of our experience. And yeah, I love that example that you use, especially for the period of time when I was living in Ojai, California and teaching often in LA. I would say Mm. at the beginning of a teaching, uh, if you're here to keep things pretty, you're in the wrong place because that can be such a uh, kind of misconstrued notion of spirituality affiliated with the light as opposed to affiliated with something much bigger and much more inclusive.
1: Yeah. And then I think people get discouraged and leave practice because they're expecting, oh, within a week and a half by next Tuesday at the latest, you know, everything will be blissful. And they're not, and they miss out on the real gifts of practice, which is really going deeper and deeper into the nature of reality with all the facets and all the nuances of it. So I think people. Because they come in with that wrong view of what it means, they get discouraged and leave and then miss out on all the benefit.
2: Yes, yes. And I would just add, especially in today's world where the opportunity to cultivate or rather awaken to our resilience and mm. the resilience that that we need, that the world is calling out in us to navigate the intensity of these times when we think it's just about um transcending and getting to the light we miss every teacher every dharma gateway that presents itself through our difficult challenging messy uncomfortable awkward life experiences (laughs) and we just learn to smile at them and embrace them as teachers
1: Mm. right yeah yeah you know, you were mentioning teaching a lot in LA, and in, in your book, you talk about the Southern California culture of sunshining, and what I often think of as toxic positivity. And you say the messages we get from dominant culture are lighten up, get over it, stay positive, you know, look on the bright side, which creates this duality between positive and negative. And then we feel that there's something wrong with us for not feeling upbeat all the time and I teach a, a modality called cultivating emotional balance. And in that we really get away from the language of emotions we don't we never use the language of positive and negative emotions. We use the language of constructive and destructive and we say that all emotions can be either constructive or destructive. It's about how do we manifest. You know the emotion, and is it harmful for our own and others' well-being? But all emotions have a function and a message for us. And I loved when I was reading your book because what you were saying about emotions seems so much in alignment with this idea that there isn't ones that are acceptable and ones that are unacceptable. That they all really have, you know, a function and a message and can give us information about ourselves
0: you're listening to reflections on buddhism on ksqd 90.7 fm and ksqd.org tenzin choki is a teacher of workshops and programs that bridge the world of buddhist thought contemplative practice and the latest research in positive psychology Tenzin is especially interested in bringing the wisdom of Buddhism into modern culture and into alignment with modern cultural values. You can find out more about Tenzin's offerings and subscribe to her podcast at unlockingtruehappiness.org. Today, we're joined by Zen meditation and mindfulness teacher, author, activist, and sustainability educator, Deborah Eden Tall. Eden teaches the integration of compassionate awareness into every aspect of our lives. She spent seven years training as a Buddhist monk at a silent Zen monastery and has been teaching Dharma for 19 years. Eden has also been living in and teaching about sustainable communities for over 25 years. Eden teaches engaged awareness practice, which emphasizes the connection between personal awakening and global engagement. Eden draws upon teachings from the natural world and an embodied understanding of animism. She is the author of Relational Mindfulness, a handbook for deepening our connection with ourselves, each other, and our planet, The Natural Kitchen, your guide for the sustainable food revolution, and Embracing Darkness, which is the book that we'll talk about today. Her work has been featured in the Los Angeles Times, Tricycle, Yogi Times, Goop, Shambhala Times, and The Ecologist. She also teaches The Work That Reconnects, a program created by Buddhist scholar Joanna Macy, and she teaches for UCLA's Mindful Awareness Research Center. Eden offers retreats, online courses, and consultations internationally. To learn more, go to deborahedenthal.com.
2: I see such a tendency in today's world for people to really turn away from and discount uh, the emotions that they label negative and then to hold very tightly to these labels of positive versus negative as if they are um, truth and they're not, it's an overlay, a label, a judgment that the ego creates really. So to live in relationship to that positive versus negative all the time instead of seeing emotion, energy in motion uh, with a compassionate neutrality. And as I hear you pointing to, learning to work with all of them, uh, compassionately, skillfully, to see the messenger in the really um, sticky ones,
1: yeah? Yeah, exactly. And I think some of the, I do a lot of teaching about the emotion of anger because it's been quite a journey for me to, kind of see the gifts of anger and the function of anger, because I think especially also in Buddhist, the Buddhist world, it's seen as this unilaterally negative emotion to be avoided and also sadness. And it's interesting at the same time I was reading your book, I also happened to be reading Bittersweet by Susan Kane. And there just seemed to be so much overlap between the ideas in both books And Susan Cain also critiques this American culture of insistence on positivity and positive emotions. And she's making a case for what she calls the bittersweet, which has kind of this tinge of sadness there and, you know, makes a case for embracing all of our emotions. And I imagine you probably read her book or are familiar with her ideas and wondering what you think about this idea of the bittersweet.
2: Well, here's what I'll share. I haven't yet read her book. You
1: are the second person
2: in two weeks who has named that to me, so I will be reading it very soon. (laughs) But what arises for me just listening to you is something about the the role and the place that tenderness uh, has Mm. taken in my life through practice and that tenderness takes in all of our lives as practitioners. The recognition of tenderness as uh, an incredibly um, honest and also generous um, quality of presence that as practitioners, as meditators, we're really invited to meet all of life with. This bittersweet connects me to the notion of tenderness. Our hearts can feel uh, sore and sad by what we, See and experience, but it's a a loving sadness, <laughs> a bittersweetness. Yeah, does yeah. that point to it for you?
1: Yeah, you know, and and Susan Kane mentions this word, and I I teach a lot in Brazil on Zoom. I've never actually been there, and in Portuguese, there's this beautiful word, saudades, and it's what what a lot of my Brazilian friends say when they see me or they're signing off an email. And it's kind of this mixture of this bittersweet, like missing longing, but the love is in there. And what you're saying kind of makes me think of the gateway to sort of empathy and compassion is connecting with suffering, with sadness, with all of the experience. Like if we just focus on the positivity for me, we can't, Sort of understand the Four Noble Truths really and connect with the reality of all of the messy bits of all the experience that everyone's going through. Like we need to also have that capacity. And I love, I love the word you're using, tenderness. And to me, that really relates to sort of the gateway to compassion and empathy and connection.
2: Yes. And as I hear you, talking about this, just the word multidimensionality is coming Mm -hmm. to mind and heart that in order for us to be fully alive and fully awake to our human experience, we have to be open to the multidimensionality of every moment. And that includes the full spectrum of light and dark. And even this past week, two experiences come to mind. One was getting to spend a little bit of time with my nephews who are quite young and just this, I would say bittersweet and tender Uh feeling in my heart, watching this gorgeous fleeting moment of a three-year-old's birthday. (laughs) So full Uh of joy and so full of this kind of safety that I could tell uh, he felt that is uh, unique to a particular moment in childhood. You with me? And yeah. then later in the week, I was leading a workshop for the Environmental Defense Fund about grief and the climate crisis. And I was so struck by the beauty, the, the joy, the joie de vie in coming together to touch grief uh, as a group about this heartbreaking, overwhelming, heart-wrenching mm-hmm. topic. But there was joy in the coming together about it, which is always what I experience in conscious grief work.
1: <laughs> yeah. It's interesting, isn't it? That, you know, the joy, the poignancy, the bittersweetness, it all comes together. And there are a lot of philosophers and writers that talk about as you do. And Susan Kane also mentions this sort of memento mori, like having an awareness of death and how that's actually an access point to joy But realizing the fleetingness, like you say, of the three-year-old birthday party, that's just this moment. But even like realizing the fleetingness makes us appreciate so much more the moments of joy and happiness we have. In the Tibetan tradition, we focus a lot on death awareness meditation, and rather than being morbid, it actually kind of wakes us up and makes us make the most of the time that we have. So that, yeah, it's such an interesting relationship, isn't it, between all of those things kind of inform and support each other.
2: Yes, yes. And I'm with you 100%. And I would say that in my own experience, even as a 11-year-old um, who found out one day out uh-huh. of the blue that my dad had a month left to live, And then as he was a contemplative christian with a very deep practice and quality of presence himself getting to watch him bring his life to a close in a very graceful um, and grateful way that really informed me and set me off on the buddhist Mm. path Um, because like you're saying that awareness of death that recognition of impermanence it becomes a beautiful fire under our belt for how we live each day, for how we do not take for granted this time here for the knowing that it's not a casual experience, the opportunity to to wake up. And so it's interesting because having gone through grief at a young age in a culture that was caught in sunshining, it was very confusing. Mm, And um, to over the years, recognize how many people are hungry for this invitation to, as you're saying, celebrate the bittersweet, to make the connection between impermanence and death and the joy with which we live. It it makes us more whole as humans.
1: Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. And, you know, for me, I remember when I first started studying Tibetan Buddhism and this is in Dharamsala in India in 1991 and it was really a good death awareness meditation that gave me the courage to just completely change my life around and devote myself to practice. So that awareness really lights the fire when you know you don't have forever. Then interestingly enough, life becomes just so much more rich and vibrant and meaningful. It really is that. And and how you know, you talk about that experience with your dad's death and how tragic, but like you say, how transformative to have that lesson at such a tender age and kind of starting you off on this trajectory. Yeah. Yes.
2: Yes. And I would just add, I, I feel a connection with what you're talking about right now with that first death meditation that you did and what it inspired in your path. And the conversation a little earlier about anger and the destructive Mm. emotions, because when we're not taught the uh, wholeness that contains destruction as well as creation, we get really confused as humans. (laughs) And even something like learning to work with an emotion, the energy of anger, That becomes such a creative, such a regenerative, such a transformative and alchemical uh, energy to work with when we're not labeling destructive as uh, bad, as separate. When we recognize the interplay of
1: destruction and creation, right? And I think that's why, like a lot of the Eastern traditions really hold up, you know, I mean, I'm thinking of Hinduism, which I don't know that much about, but there is the energy of the destructive is seen as just as important as the energy of creation, you know, Krishna and Vishnu and, and, Kali. and Kali, you know, and that energy is seen as so important. And it's glossed over, I think, in our, you know, kind of modern, hyper materialistic, I mean, I'm thinking again of capitalism and this idea of infinite growth, and the positive thing only being gross, gross, you know, domestic product and not any other criteria of what flourishing looks like, and that it also includes all of the fallow phases, too, and that we need that. It's all part of the cycle. Yes. Yes. Beautifully stated. Yeah. You know, there's a quote I love from your book. You say, while it's true that practice is not always easy, it is much easier than we've been conditioned to think. It is not the battle of the solo, heroic, masculine warrior of light against dark. It is a journey of soft surrender, relaxed attention, subtle awareness, and persistent kindness. Awakening is a continual motion of opening to embrace rather than to battle life. And I think we're definitely conditioned to this solo heroic, like Hero's Journey, Joseph Campbell and everybody else. And I find that many of the newer generation of spiritual teachers tend to emphasize more of this accepting attitude, more of an emphasis on support and community and practices of loving kindness and especially those that are more attuned to kind of pushing back against the more patriarchal and hierarchical mainstream model especially of buddhist practice that we've gotten from the traditional asian kind of imports imported traditions and many of these teachers are also members of the lgbtq community and people of color, feminists, and of course, with so many sexual abuse scandals in various Buddhist communities, I think many traditions and communities are exploring alternatives to these traditional hierarchical models. And what do you think about this direction that Buddhism in the so-called West or North America, do you think it'll take more and more of these other directions, maybe less hierarchical and more embracing and more embracing of all of the emotions and less rigid as these older traditional structures are perhaps replaced by kind of the newer generation and newer models. What do you think about about kind of that direction?
2: Great question. And I personally am so inspired and am moved uh, daily by the movement that's occurring the growing awareness uh, within many sanghas in the voices of many as you're saying younger emergent uh, spiritual teachers in the generation x dharma community uh, which i'm part there have been rich conversations for years about the need to celebrate relational forms of knowing and relational intelligence and power with rather than power over. So the um, ways we can relate with one another beyond hierarchical perception and I would say beyond patriarchal modeling. It's deeply inspiring and it points to um, an important, simple and radical honesty where practitioners need to be uh, taking agency for questioning and paying attention to the conditioning that can even inform our spiritual lineage, that can even inform the way that our spiritual practices are being taught, that we all need to have our eyes and ears open for limiting conditioning for instance patriarchal conditioning that is no longer serving us so i explore this quite a bit in the book but on a personal level i'm deeply inspired by it and it's certainly a a major theme in my path so in my sangha and in the trainings that i guide we look together um, often at what it means to live more from shared power rather than the habits of power over or the ways of even perceiving in human relationships and power dynamics, this kind of power over that's been passed down to us. And I think it's beautiful work and I think it's very emergent, yeah?
1: Yeah, definitely. And one of the things that actually Matthew and I have talked about in previous episodes of the radio show is this tendency... I See sometimes in Buddhist communities to uh value the absolute over the relative and to tell people who are members of marginalized communities, whether it's due to gender, gender identity, race, ethnicity, whatever, oh, that's just you know, you've got to get over it. That's just identity. There is no such thing as the I and so forth. And, you know we've really pushed back against that idea in several shows about kind of prioritizing the absolute which of course usually the people doing that are of all you know the dominant culture and don't really know what it is like to you know exist in the world in some some identity that tends to be marginalized and so i think there can be a distortion in spiritual communities that kind of gloss over difference so i love People like you who said no—it's it's really important to look at all of these aspects too and kind of create the sanghas that we want to inhabit, and not just feel invisible due to certain identities that are not maybe welcomed into dominant cultural space.
2: Yes, I'm with you, and and in that to acknowledge the the interplay between the relative and the absolute, where when we're willing to meet the relative world we're living in with the clear seeing of the absolute we can but not in an uh, exclusive way in an or a discounting yeah. way in an inclusive way we can really uh, plant seeds of transformation we can allow the uh, challenges that arise to be part of helping to heal um, ancestral stuff helping yes. to heal and wake up from collective conditioning. If we bypass, we totally miss that opportunity.
1: Right. It's a great right. opportunity. Right. Yeah. yeah.
0: If you're just joining us, you're listening to Reflections on Buddhism with Tenzin Choki on KSQD 90.7 FM. So One of the, one of the correlations that really strikes me in, in your book is the correlations between entanglement and enlightenment, and the right and left brain, sort of the stereotypical uh, view of of the intelligence of the right and versus left brains? And I wonder if you've given much thought to, you know, as I have two young nephews, and as I see school curriculums being pushed more and more towards STEM programming and away from more relational type programming. You know, I I wonder, is there some advice for parents on how they can help their children explore this concept of endarkenment in an accessible way?
2: I love that question. Um, That's really rich. And I'll share that uh, my grandmother was actually an early childhood educator who wrote some books, one of which was called, Is the Left Brain Always Right? And she created a school based on creativity and the arts that, um, I haven't put much words to this, but it really impacted me as a child, just coming into this space that they had created, even physically, that looked very different from other schools and was so much about um, one's somatic experience and movement and creation. And the first thing that arises in response to your question for parents is really to recognize that, especially in a consumer oriented world, um, and a world that tends to perpetuate the subject object uh, framing of life, the more we can encourage in our kids and create spaces for uh, pure creativity for the creative process being valued, it's the most important thing, all creativity arises from darkness, all insight, all vision, all fresh ideas, and simply providing more and more of that space for both creative expression and exploration and also relational um, connection and exploration. Just acknowledging um, as you are the, I think, which has a lot of momentum (laughs) direction in the opposite way and i know that some of the kids i know who uh, during the pandemic took a pause from some of their conventional schedule and immersed even more fully in simply the creative process empowering their own uh, knowledge of felt knowledge experiential knowledge of participation gained so much wisdom during that time does that make sense
0: it does. It makes complete sense. and I'm what I'm really struck by is your emphasis on the creative process rather than the fruits of creativity because I think certainly in an Instagram dominated world, we're we're led to really, I think, prioritize the outputs of creativity more so than the actual creative process itself.
2: Yes, and I think we could look at many domains of life. Through this, referencing the notion that light, which is also akin to uh, the product, that which we see, uh, the result, that which we attain, is more valuable than darkness, the unformed, the invisible, the unknown, the creative process itself. And it's such a richness to infuse in people's life when we can encourage people to value process over product. This was one of my favorite uh, teachings from Zen and certainly the life of Zen monasticism. <laughs> um, very rarely, if ever, were you applauded for the product of something. Uh, you would build a rock wall and then it would get taken down. You'd be asked to build another one. And that's just how it went. But I think in today's world, just acknowledging um How much more joy and aliveness and peace people could feel if they had that much less pressure to create the product that's going to be seen and then perhaps uh, allow their. sense of small self to be momentarily uh, dissolved by reaching that goal or by getting outside uh, applaud and instead to know the joy of process the process of creating this book for instance co-creating is really the word because it's writing is such a channeling um, process the process of uh, cleaning one's house with love meeting and touching all the aspects of your home with care Uh, the process of being in conversation without trying to prove whose opinion is right uh, actually living in inquiry together just conversing as an unfolding emergent process the process of uh, erotic intelligence and um, sexual connection and pleasure without it being about following a script or reaching an end goal there's so many examples we could give but this is another way that darkness is a teacher and that the invitation for people to remember the richness of the unformed the unseen the process of life rather than focusing on the visible and the product thank you for mentioning instagram because i really do feel um for the younger generations in how this has impacted their mindset and ways of relating
1: yeah
0: and I think one of the ways you, you put this contrast in the book is the contrast between the doing, which I think so much defines our culture today, and this idea of being and having action emerge out of being rather than this sort of frantic effort that we're constantly being asked to make.
2: Yes thank you for bringing this up and this was so much a a freeing point for me uh, a coming home through meditation when i really recognized and earlier the phrase spiritual warrior was mentioned that this was not a pursuit of the spiritual warrior finally transcending the dark to get to the light through active doing but a path of resting and resting in non-doing in shared presence in pure receptivity and recognizing through surrendering to that receptivity that awareness is already awake that we're already home (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) that the light within is unwavering uh, waiting for us to recognize this it was such a freedom for me because i had always been a a receptive um person sometimes I connect receptivity with the deep feminine which we access in balance to the sacred masculine and practice and in awakening but I'd really been conditioned to discount that for doing efforting more is better harder is better faster is better bigger is better I'm a very petite person so I had to (laughs) let go of some of that conditioning to wake up to um, the gifts of the deep feminine and receptivity yeah
1: and along those lines like you you're speaking of you know the feminine and earlier you talked about eco dharma and you talk in the book about ideas from you know everything from judeo christian spirituality to new age philosophy emphasizing this duality you know and it shows up in different ways pure and impure with the goal being purity, and then purity being associated with light, spirit, mind, and so forth, and impure with darkness, the earth, the body, the feminine, which leads to so much disconnection from our bodies. And this mind-body split is just so common in so many different traditions, and of course, relates to that mechanistic paradigm promoted by Descartes and Bacon which coincided with the industrial revolution and the rise of capitalism. So this whole conversation about productivity and doing. And, you know, I remember in the 80s, there were lots of books and teachings kind of pushing back against these ideas and going back to older pagan ideas of the earth and the body also being sacred. And then these days we have people like Robin Wall Kimmerer and Braiding Sweetgrass, which you mentioned in your book, and also so inspired by Suzanne Simard and all of her work about like these mycelial networks and just kind of the sacredness of the earth, the sacredness of the feminine, the sacredness of the body, sexuality, which you just mentioned. And so... I love you bringing all of that side in because I think all of those things have been associated with the darkness. And we have just hundreds and hundreds of years of kind of cultural tradition, you know, validating the light and the mind and spirit and, you know, not validating as much this whole domain of the feminine, the earth and the body. And I just love that you really bring that into your book so explicitly. Thank you. I'm so glad for you to touch
2: on that. It's so important. It's almost shocking when we really open our eyes to the degree to which that has been pushed away. Darkness as the deep feminine, darkness as relational forms of knowing the whole domain of our felt experience connection with the earth and to recognize throughout history um, How many people have been burned at the stake for attempting to claim their connection with the divine through this body and through uh, more relational forms of knowing, earth-based practices, uh, indigenous practices. It's amazing, this theme throughout history. And then as you're pointing to this, waking back up from
1: that. (laughs) Right, (laughs) Right. World. Yeah. Yeah. I remember, I think it was the early 90s, and I was involved in this Buddhist group. And there were, at that point, lots of Buddhist Christian dialogues going on, sort of this interfaith, like His Holiness the Dalai Lama was meeting with, you know, Christian monastics, and there were all these dialogues. And I had a Buddhist friend who was also studying with Starhawk, and she said, oh, I think we need more Buddhist pagan conferences. <laughs> that would be a direction to go in. So I've always kind of remembered that and thought, oh, that would be great to bring the earth-based you know, perspective. I think for a lot of the Buddhist traditions, you know, kind of were developed in traditional culture in Asia where it wasn't even a question. Of course, people lived in connection with the earth. I mean, every metaphor in Buddhist scripture has to do with farming and planting seeds and reaping crops and so forth. But I think it can get really distorted when it's imported into our sort of post-industrial capitalist society where that's not a given. And we can just imbue Buddhism with these Cartesian ideas as well of kind of the spirit and the mind being superior in some way. And so I think it's good to explicitly bring it back. And I really honor that it feels that you're really naming that in your book.
2: And I want to acknowledge, uh, because I love what you're pointing to, the extraordinary movement that I see today uh, within Buddhism uh, and a weaving across different spiritual traditions to reclaim the power and potency and medicine of our profound connection with the earth and the profound yeah. medicine of embodiment and eros there's an integration that's starting to happen there are some incredible uh, teachers and guides uh, that i feel like i'm part of a community of people who are mm. <laughs> re-weaving this and yeah. It's it's really important because otherwise we get lost in this anthropocentric lens that blinds us to reality and certainly to our uh deep connection with and expression of the natural world. Yeah, thank you for pointing. out. Yeah.
0: If you're just joining us, you're listening to Reflections on Buddhism with Tenzin Choki on KSQD ninety point seven FM.
1: I gave a talk recently. I was introduced to this researcher called Yap Pongsep, who talks about different neural circuits, and he does, has done a lot of research on what he calls the play circuit, and how we need. It has to do with connection. And it's found in all mammals. And, you know, we all know puppies and kittens play and tumble around with each other. But he talks about how we need to keep that circuit alive, even as adults and figure out ways to play and how much the play circuit has to do with our ability to connect to others and be in relationship. There was a study that, a study of, I think it was, serial killers or mass murderers. And they said the one thing they found in common, these researchers were studying these people was that they had play suppressed as children, that they were under a very controlling domineering parent that wouldn't allow them to express any kind of play or fun. And it makes me think of how I sometimes say in sort of the North American version of Buddhism, we take refuge in two jewels of refuge buddha and dharma and we don't think of spiritual community at all you know it's sort of like in this hyper individualist culture we're like buddha dharma sangha but we're not really taking refuge in the collective so i love that you just named so much of our visioning needs to be done in relation to others in this sort of collective visioning not just sitting by ourselves visioning, because we're never going to be able to create it alone.
2: Yes. And I'm um, just stunned by that study uh, that you shared. It makes a great lot of sense to me and would also add uh, just the importance of playing together in our communities, in our yeah. song, being in our bodies together. So one of the things after I left the monastery where I trained um, which was an incredible place and also had both its own power dynamics and also had its own conditioning its own conditioned uh, biases, <laughs> which I woke up from more as I left. But is that I reconnected fully with, with my own practice of transformative dance. And <laughs> remember a dance teacher of mine, inviting a group of people who were focused on silent meditation onto the dance floor and just shaking them up with this inquiry into can you really maintain the same quality of presence you do on silent retreat on the cushion when you're engaged with sweat and sexiness and uncomfortable interactions and uh, movement and chaos and are you able to maintain the same quality of presence? And so that really woke me up to the value of making sure I get my sangha dancing as often as possible. <laughs> That's awesome.
1: Yeah. That, which is not the yeah. traditional Zen, Zen way, is it?
2: No, and yet in today's world, people need it so much. Yeah.
1: Right? Yeah, Yeah. yeah. That's why I think like, you know, for me, I give a lot of thought to For example, in the Tibetan tradition, which I've done most of my training in, what was a given in Tibetan culture, like this connection to the earth or being a farmer, there was just a given, so it didn't need to be brought into the spiritual path explicitly, but for those of us that spend the majority of our time in front of the luminous rectangles and not in touch with our body and not getting out there physically planting seeds and all of that... How do we need to bring some of some of that, you know, with the movement and the body and the earth focused more explicitly into practice? And it's it's a big kind of question for me in an area area of investigation as well.
2: I am so grateful for all of us who are investigating that. Yes. <laughs> and you know, we can acknowledge the inner subjective nature of conditioning that if our um communities if our neighbors if our leaders or even if sangha members are sharing particular conditioning that may have been passed down from generations of uh disconnect from the earth or generations of focus on rational mind over relational forms of knowing we might not be aware that that conditioning those limitations exist so the kind of courage and open eyes and heart are required to really investigate, even and especially within our own spiritual communities.
1: Mm, mm, Yeah. yeah, So it's not
2: just drinking the Kool-Aid, right? Yes,
1: that's right, that's right. And we're conditioned to do that in some spiritual communities. The idea of kind of questioning and critiquing is not valued. And so I think that's something that we need to introduce as well. You know, I love it when students push back and sometimes they apologize for it. And I say, no, please, like, let's have a conversation about this thing. I'm certainly a work in progress and learn so much from others all the time and love it when students push back against some of my ideas, because I find I grow so much, you know, but I think that sometimes that attitude isn't as valued as much in our spiritual communities.
2: Yes. And I think sometimes it comes from people wanting to play it safe or what can happen in tribalism sometimes of, oh, that happened for me in my early years as a Buddhist. This is the culture. I'm going to try to fit in with it. And parts of me didn't fit in with it. And instead at the beginning of bringing those forth and being transparent and inquiring and pushing back with love and respect (laughs) Um, so I could grow more. And instead of that, I kind of complied, and it didn't feel whole. Yeah.
1: And to me, you know, it feels to me like kind of like developmental stages in life. We certainly have spiritual developmental stages, and I look at my own practice as well. And I think, oh, in the beginning, I did everything exactly the way that my teachers taught me to do it because I was just learning. And then at a certain point, I just had to integrate and my spiritual path became much more individual and not just sort of a copy of the way my teachers had taught me. And I think it's just, you know, I was confused by that when it started happening and thought, oh, am I getting terribly off track? But then I really realized it was just, I was in a different stage of development. So just kind of like Erickson's stages of, of development of through the lifetime, I think we have equivalent ones in the spiritual path. And I Love it if we just talked about that a lot more kind of collectively in our journeys as well. I am with you completely,
2: yes. And I have gone through many phases and will continue to in my own practice, but I'm reflecting on the time when I first became a lay person after being a monastic and how there was both this um, sense of uh, some confusion and chaos along with trying to hold somewhat rigidly to the forms i had been given like those forms were training wheels and then this building trust in this unwavering uh, inner guidance that can be trusted (laughs) that we can only learn to trust when we let go of the training wheels or the rigidity or clinging to form
1: yeah yeah just so much in your book that I resonated with, I think particularly because of the timing of when I received it. So it's been a great gift to me, your work, your life, your teaching, and I just hope to stay connected and it would be great to meet you in three dimensions at some point. <laughs> I agree.
2: I feel the same way. I feel so resonant with your presence and the perspective you're sharing. so What a blessed coming together today.
1: Yeah, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate you being with us.
0: Thank you for joining us. You can find past episodes of Reflections on Buddhism on the KSQD website or for the full extended conversation with Tenzin and Eden Visit unlocking